the book of Genesis. Now that's cool, right? That's like biting off a big chunk. But it's going to be so worth it, and it's going to be so rewarding. And I really hope that you're going to make a big effort to be here because it's so rich. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever studied it in church before, but Genesis, really one of the most rewarding uh, books of the Bible to study through. I'm really excited to get into it, and I hope you share that enthusiasm. So, um, Genesis, you know, it's the book of beginnings. And so many fundamental issues about life and God and so much else are addressed there in Genesis. So you really won't want to miss it. And I, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. Uh, today, we're in between our series. So we're going to be doing a topical study. And the title of today's message, as you can see in your bulletin, is The Path to True Joy. And we're going to be taking our text from Philippians 4, verses 8 through 20. And let's go ahead and read that. If you have your Bible, please open up to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 8 through 20. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly now at length, that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you, helped, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we... As we now seek to study your word and seek to apply it to our lives, Lord, we just ask for your spirit to be here. Give us insight into your word by your spirit, Lord. Give us anointed ears, anointed hearts to hear and receive your word. Lord, let us be doers of your word, not just hearers of it only. And Lord, I pray that your word truly this morning would burn in our bones like fire, Lord. And I pray that you would just stir us up this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So here at the end of this letter, and you may know this, the Philippian letter of Paul is known as the epistle of joy. In this short letter, he uses the word joy or some form of the word joy around 20 times. That's significant since there's only four short chapters. So this is the epistle of joy, and I would like to point out to you this morning from the text three principles which God's word teaches which are key to experiencing the joy of the Lord in our lives. I got three here. Up, hopefully they're up there. They, uh, first, we're going to talk about the thoughts that lead to joy. So first, the thoughts that lead to joy. Second, we're going to talk about the contentment that leads to joy. 
And finally, we're going to talk about the generosity that leads to joy. So the thoughts that lead to joy, the contentment that leads to joy, and finally, the generosity that leads to, leads to joy. But before we get into that, let's take a few minutes to define what we're talking about. What is this joy, and why is this important for us? Uh, the dictionary defines joy as, as the following. The emotion of great delight caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. Keen pleasure, elation. True joy, or sorry, let me say this again. True faith will be manifested in joy. Think about that. True faith will be manifested in joy. Uh, Some people think that when you're a Christian, right, there's this expectation that you put on a big smile and you pretend that things are awesome all the time, you know? You come, hey, and you got this big plastic smile and people are like, how's it going? And you're like, I'm terrible, but I got this big smile because that's what we do, you know? But uh, no, you know, joy is more than just a superficial or manufactured happiness. It's more than, it's not a plastic smile that we put on. A jo- joy is really something much deeper than that. It is a deep-seated, deep-rooted sense of satisfaction and hopefulness. I love, that, I love that definition, that it's a deep-seated sense of satisfaction and hopefulness. That is my definition of joy. And what that means is that opposed to a kind of superficial happiness, joy is not dependent on your circumstances. Rather, deep and lasting joy is ultimately tied to hope. Deep and lasting joy is ultimately tied to hope. And that's the kind of joy that Paul is talking about here in this letter. And that's why he is able to say this amazing statement, which we hear, but we really got to rethink things. Like, think about how serious this statement is that he makes when he says in Philippians 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now that is a profound statement because it takes real faith. It takes serious faith to be able to rejoice at all times. That's not a natural thing. It takes some real faith to be able to rejoice at all times. It takes real faith to be able to trust that God has a plan and a purpose for your good and for his glory, even in the most difficult situations. Someone might say, you know, okay, I understand the verse. I mean, it's pretty simple to understand rejoice at all times. I mean, I understand all times means all times, but but that can't really mean all the time, right? Because... Well, what if I just found out that I have cancer? You want me to rejoice about that? You want me to be happy about that? Should I rejoice in the Lord that I have cancer? What if I just lost my job? I can't pay my bills. I'm broke. Should I rejoice then? Again, that's why it's so important to define what we're talking about. Joy in the Lord is something which is the result of faith and hope. Faith in the character of God, in his goodness, in his sovereignty, in his agape love, and hope in the truth of his promises. So it is possible to even be sad, to even be grieving, while at the same time having a heart that's full of joy in the Lord. It's that stable, lasting, deep-seated sense of satisfaction and hopefulness. And Paul himself, you know, these weren't just empty words. These were words that he lived according to. These characterized his actions. First of all, think about this, this epistle of joy. This is one of Paul's prison epistles. He didn't just write to, he was was tied to a Roman soldier 
in a, arrested in Rome writing this letter about joy. He could have easily written about suffering for the Lord and guys, it's tough, but you got to grit and bear it. But that's not what he said. And then he said, you know what? I'm in jail, but you know what? I got to tell you guys, there is nothing more joyful than knowing the Lord Jesus, than being declared righteous by his blood. There's nothing that gives you greater joy. And he says, I want you to know that. Even writing from prison, he says, there's nothing that gives you the ultimate joy of following Jesus. And again, this letter is written to the Philippians. Now think back to the book of Acts, right? Chapter 16, Paul goes to the city of Philippi. You probably know this story. Uh, him and Silas, his partner, they're preaching the gospel. God told them to go there. They're just obeying the Lord. They're doing his work. And what happens? They get thrown in jail. Unjustly, unfairly, they're put in jail. And what are they doing? It says that in the midnight hour, what were they doing? They were shaking their fist at God and saying, Why did you let this happen to me? Why? Why me? Why does everything that could possibly go wrong happen to me? Why, God? I'm trying to serve you. What is this? No. You know the story. What were they doing at the midnight hour? They were singing praises to God in jail in the middle of the night. And I'm pretty sure that everybody heard them. Uh, not just because it was a jail, but because it was the middle of the night. Like, people were probably like, hey, we're trying to get some sleep here, and you guys are over there singing to Jesus. And as a result of them singing these songs of praise and, and, uh, and worship out of the joy that was in their hearts, even though they're in jail, right? What happened? Even in the dark night, in the jail, the jailkeeper and his family ended up coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. And I want you to think about that and think about this. For all of us, it's that joy in the Lord, right? That faith and that hope that is manifested in joy that is one of the greatest testimonies to those around you. One of the most powerful things that will draw people to the Lord or encourage people in the Lord is when they see that you have true, deep, lasting joy in the Lord no matter what circumstance you are in in your life. You know, as you have joy in the Lord, people are going to see the fingerprints of God on your life. They're going to see that you have hope and you have faith and that that hope and faith has substance. So back to those three principles from our text I'd like to expound on today. Um, about experiencing this biblical joy of the Lord in a greater way. So number one, I want to talk about the thoughts that lead to joy. The thoughts that lead to joy. And we're going to go back to verse 8. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. One of the keys to experiencing joy in your heart is to have the right thoughts in your mind. One of the keys to experiencing joy in your heart is to have the right thoughts in your mind. Have you ever noticed that as human beings, we are drawn like moths to a flame to controversy, right? There are whole magazines, newspapers that exist, websites. It's all about controversy. There's something about our nature that is drawn to controversy. And many times what you find is that people will spend so much time focusing on what is wrong, what is horrible, rather than what is good and lovely, and one of the results of this is that as we fill our mind with these kind of thoughts all the time, it very much affects how we perceive the world. It very much affects how we perceive other people. Uh, because the fact is that no one is totally objective. 
right? We have to accept that. No one is totally objective. None of us views the world around us in a totally sterile, objective way. Everything we see, we interpret. We interpret it based on many factors, such as our experiences and the things which we have heard from others. And that's why oftentimes people will, uh, people from different parts of the world, you know, from different cultures, they'll look at the exact same thing and they'll see it in a completely different way. You know, someone from a certain culture will look at something and say, that's great. Someone from another culture will look at the same thing and say, that's horrible. You know, because they're perceiving it based on many, uh, they've gone through a filter. So one of the keys to experiencing the joy of the Lord is to have the right thoughts in your head. That's what Paul's saying here. So I want you to think about this. What do you, what do I, what do we fill our minds with? What kind of things do we spend the most time thinking about? Negative, cynical things? Or the things which are described here in this verse? Because here in this verse, Paul's telling the Philippian believers to fill their minds with the kind of things that will inspire them to worship God and to serve others. That's the kind of stuff he wants them to fill their minds with. If you're a person who has a tendency towards cynicism and negativity, which I would assume that that's why Paul writes this to the Philippians. He wouldn't be writing this unless this was an issue that needed to be addressed. So if you are a person who has a tendency towards a cynical outlook on things, negativity, understand that this is God's word for you, is to choose, make a choice to fill your mind with things that inspire you to worship God and serve others. That's one very practical thing you can do to change the way you think. Because it's been said before, right, that you cannot change your heart. Only God can change your heart. And oftentimes we can't choose the way that we feel. We can't just say, I'm going to turn that switch and I'm going to feel differently now about something. You just feel the way you do. But the one thing that you can change is the way you think, the patterns of your thoughts, the thoughts that you fill your mind with, the things that you spend time with in your mind. You can't change your heart. Only God can change your heart. Oftentimes you can't change the way that you feel even, but... If you choose to change the way you think and bring your thoughts in line with God's word and God's way, God will change your heart. And as your heart changes, what you find is that your feelings will follow suit. So one of the keys to experiencing the joy of the Lord in your heart is to have the right thoughts in your head. That's why I'm convinced that the true battleground for spiritual warfare that we talk about in the Bible, right? I believe the true battleground is the mind. Is your mind and my mind, our thoughts. That's the battleground where much of the spiritual warfare in our lives takes place. Because thoughts can be so destructive. Satan, Jesus gave him a name. He gave him a title. He said, he, he is the father of lies. That's what he called him. He's the father of lies. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And where does that all begin? It begins in the human mind. And, and when Satan, the father of lies, right, and his henchmen or whatever, their, their M.O., what they do is they whisper lies to you and I. Think about these things. Uh, you know, he, says, he whisper in your ear, just nobody loves you. Not even God loves you. No one would miss you if you were not here. You're just a burden, you know. Even God is fed up with you because you keep messing up. You keep blowing it. You've gone too far. There's no more grace for you. These are lies. Nothing you do ever works out. 
everyone has it better off than you do. If there really were a God, do you think that he would let this happen to you? Oh yeah, or another one, you know, oh yeah, you know, that thing might be sin, but you can do it. Hey, no big deal. In fact, if you do it, you'll be happy. In fact, that's the one thing that's keeping you from being happy, is not doing that thing. Yeah, it's sin, but you know what? The repercussions aren't going to be that bad. Just go ahead. And a million other lies like that. Those are thoughts that can literally destroy a person. They can destroy families. They can destroy a lot of stuff. And they can lead people to hurt themselves, hurt other people. They can, they lead to sin. They lead to rebellion against God and they cause destruction and havoc. And that kind of stuff is inspired by Satan. That's why when I read Ephesians chapter 6, right, what I see when Paul is talking about putting on the full armor of God to defend against the attacks of the enemy, these are all things that have to do with defending ourselves against the lies of the enemy, with the helmet of salvation, You know, a breastplate of righteousness, a belt of truth. And and the way we fight back, right, is with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. We defend against those lies of Satan by knowing the truth of the gospel, by becoming intimately familiar with the gospel. So that we can say, when we hear those lies, we can say, no, that's not true. That's a lie. I know the truth because God's word says something Totally different than that. Even if that's what I feel at the moment, or even if that's the thought that's in my mind right now, I know that that's not from the Lord. It's from the Father of lies, and I will choose to believe God instead. So do you see what I'm saying? The battleground for spiritual warfare, where it takes place, is in the human mind. Our mind, our thoughts. And our goal, as Paul says in another place, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, He says that, he's speaking of spiritual warfare, he says that our goal is to take every thought captive for Christ. You see, a big part of having joy in your heart is having the right thoughts in your head. And that's why Paul says, here are the thoughts that lead to joy, the ones listed in that verse. Fill your mind with these things, and you will increasingly walk in the joy of the Lord. Second point today. The contentment that leads to joy. The contentment that leads to joy. Let's read from verse 11 to 13. He says this, I'll start here. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment is not something that comes naturally to most people. Uh, Paul says here himself, check this out, he says, I have learned to be content. It's something that you have to learn. It's something that we should seek to learn. Uh, You know, there's something about our human nature that always desires to be in a different situation than we're in at the moment. And advertisers and marketers, they know that and they take advantage of it and they bring this never-ending parade of images before our eyes. They say, this is where you really want to live. This is the car you really want to drive. This is the life you really want to have. This is the wife you really want to have. This is how you really want to look. And, and what they're doing is they're stimulating that discontentment that is already within us. 
to get us to buy newer and shinier stuff. And you know, you guys know this, that discontentment is what causes people to spend money that they don't have to buy things that they don't actually need. Discontentment is what leads people to feel that they have to change their wife or their car or their workplace all the time. Uh, but God's word gives us some, some wonderful advice. Is, that, is this, if you want to live a joyful life, learn contentment. That will lead to joy. Contentment is based on trust in God's love, in God's power, and God's plan. Contentment in a biblical sense, in the sense that Paul talks about it here, it is based upon trust in God's love, God's power, and God's plan. Because the fact is that sometimes the things that we want and the things that we think we need are not what we actually need. Sometimes there's a discrepancy between what we, what we want what we think we need, and what we actually need. Think about this story from Mark chapter 2. If you got your Bible, turn with me in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. i got to get over there real quick. Okay, and when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came and bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, think about this. Hasn't that ever struck you as strange? That Jesus, there's this dramatic scene, right? Jesus is in this house. It's packed. There's no way to get in. These people are so desperate to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus that they actually commit an act of vandalism, right? They're taking apart someone else's roof. That is dedication. But why were they bringing their friend to Jesus? Because he was lame. Because he couldn't walk. He was paralyzed. And what does Jesus say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, does that not strike you as odd? Like, like if you were to come up to me and say, Hey, Nick, can I borrow your car? And I would say, Brother, your sins are forgiven. And I just walk away, you know? And I think actually, I might be onto something here. Like, you know, from now on, whenever anyone asks me any questions that I don't want to answer, maybe that's what I should answer, right? <laughs> like, uh, Balash comes to me, you know, a teenage son comes to me and asks me, hey, can I borrow some money? I'll be like, son, your sins are forgiven. Rosemary asks me, do I look, does this dress make me look fat? Your sins are forgiven. You know, uh, I think that's, that's pretty smart. So this guy and his friends, though, they must have felt the same way. They were like, hey, the, oh, thanks, I guess, but that's not why we came here today. Uh, I'm paralyzed. I don't know if you noticed that, that my friends just dropped me through the roof on a mat. Like, I can't move. I have a really, a much more immediate problem that I need you to take care of. And maybe once you take care of my immediate problem, then we can talk about that other stuff that you mentioned. You know, but you see, here's the deal. Jesus knows that this man has a much bigger problem than his physical condition. And what he's saying to these people is this. He's saying, Look, I see your suffering, but you need to understand that there's a bigger problem here. 
there's a deeper issue. The thing that you really need most, your greatest need, is not to be healed physically, but to be forgiven of your sins, to be reconciled to God. Jesus says in another place, in Matthew chapter 16, he says, What does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? So Jesus is telling this man and all those who are watching, he's saying, by coming here and asking me to heal your body only, to meet your physical immediate need, you're not going deep enough. That's the problem. You're not going deep enough. You're not getting to the real issue at the heart of your discontent. Now you can imagine that for a paralyzed person, probably the one thing in the world that they desire more than anything is to be able to walk. I have a friend who is paralyzed from the waist down. He got paralyzed in a, he got in a motorcycle accident. And uh, it's amazing how limited he is. You know, you don't realize what kind of things affect a person uh, in a wheelchair until you spend some time with them. You know, basic things that we take for granted, they can't do. Even in our modern world where we seek to accommodate to people who are handicapped in wheelchairs. But think about people in Jesus' time. They didn't have wheelchairs. They didn't have wheelchair ramps. They were totally uh, at the mercy of other people to help them out. Every fiber, I can imagine that this man, with every fiber of his being, he desired to be able to walk. And like any person who, who can't do something, surely he would be thinking something like, if I could only walk, then I'd be set for life. I would never be unhappy again. I would, I would never complain again. If I could just have that one thing, that's all I need. That's the one thing that would make everything else all right. Have you ever had thoughts like that? This is the one thing I need. Just this. If I could have that one thing, then I don't need anything else. Then I'd be cool. God, I would never ask for anything ever again. That would make me happy. I would be content. Just give me that one thing. But what Jesus is saying to this man and to us is you're not going deep enough. If you're still talking about your immediate physical need and thinking that that's going to satisfy you, you are not going deep enough because the root of the discontent of the human heart goes very deep. And usually the things that we think we need to be in, uh, in order to be content are not the things that we actually need. We usually don't go deep enough. We don't go to the root issue that underlies the discontentment of our hearts. Because what would happen if Jesus would have given this guy what he thought he needed? If he would have just said, hey, I can do it here. I'll heal your body. Which he eventually did. But, but first he wanted to deal with the real issue. What would happen? This guy would feel great. He would be elated. He would think, this is what I needed. I will never be discontent. I got the one thing to make my life whole. But then it would just be a matter of months, maybe a year, that go by. And then this feeling of euphoria would wear off. And he would realize that this sense of discontentment was still there because he had not gone deep enough. He hadn't gone to the root of the issue. He had only gone skin deep, not to the issue of the heart. The good news for you and I is that God knows what we really need. And he loves us enough, and check this out, he loves us enough not just to give us what we want, not just to give us what we think we need, but he loves us enough to give us what we actually need. Even if, like this lame man in this story, we don't understand why he's not doing what we think he should do for us, and he does something completely different, even if we didn't, it's not something we even asked for. I read an article recently, 
in which a writer in a New York newspaper was writing about celebrities. And uh, this writer had had some many friends who had wanted to become successful and as performing artists uh, of various kinds. And she knew some who had become successful. And she was writing about the issue of celebrity. And what she wrote was essentially this. She says, everyone, when they're getting started in the business and they're struggling, they think that if they could just get a break, if they could just make it in the business and become successful, then they would be happy and then they would be content. Just like so many other people, right? They are stressed, they are driven, and they are easily upset. Uh, but for those who are successful, who became successful in, uh, in the performing arts, when they actually get the fame that they've been longing for, according to this author, they became insufferable unstable, angry. They became manic. Not just arrogant, as you might expect, but worse than that. They were unhappier than they had been before. And the author wrote this. Here's a quote from the article. She said this, I actually pity celebrities. I really do. Because they were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. And more than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, morning after morning. But the morning after they got that fame, the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because the giant thing that they were striving for, the fame that they thought was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their life bearable, that was going to provide, for, provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, it had happened and nothing had changed. They were still them. The disillusionment had turned them howling and insufferable. And she says, I feel sorry for these people. They attained that thing which they had put on the pedestal as the one thing they need that would make everything okay. And then they realized it didn't. And the author added this statement, and, and this is a pretty profound thing she said. She said, I think that when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. Ouch. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of truth in what she's saying. I do not believe that God is in the business of playing practical jokes on people. But, at the, but the heart of what she's saying is this. That the thing that we need, that we think we need to fulfill us, the thing that we think is missing in our lives are usually not deep enough. Usually we're not going deep enough. We're staying on the surface, the material, the superficial, and not addressing the true need, which is at the root of discontentment of the human heart. Maybe you remember the story of, of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus got to talking to her, and he brought up the fact, he, he brought to her the fact that she had been seeking fulfillment in relationships with men. She had been married numerous times and she was now living with a man who was not her husband and Jesus told her, if you only knew who it was who you're, who's talking to you, you would ask of me and I would give you living water. The water that if you drink of it, you would never thirst again. The issue is that most people have underestimated the depths of the longing of their heart. We've underestimated the depths of the longing of our heart because Essentially, what God's word tells us is that what we truly long for is Jesus Christ. The thing that, that they truly long for is something that people think that what they long for is something that can be found in this world. Success, material wealth, a relationship. But in reality, what our hearts truly long for is a relationship with our maker. And that can only be found through Jesus Christ. 
Augustine, he wrote this famous statement. He said, God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know if you've read it or seen the movie, but in the story, there's this boy named Eustace, and he is a really rotten kid. You know, he's, nobody likes him. He doesn't like anybody. He's mean. He's vengeful. He doesn't have any friends. He's like, I think he was their cousin or something. And as they're on this journey, they're on this ship called the Dawn Treader, right? And they're going from these, to these different islands. So they get to this one island, and Eustace wanders off, and he goes into this cave where he stumbles upon a bunch of treasure. And his immediate thought is, I found it. I'm rich. Now I will be powerful. Now I can pay back everyone who has laughed at me or hurt me. So Eustace falls asleep in this cave, hugging his treasure, and, uh, and it turned out to be the cave of a dragon. And when he wakes up, Eustace finds that he has become a dragon himself. You see, that's the irony of it. What he was on the inside, he became on the outside. Ugly, terrible, and mean. What he was on the inside, he became on the outside. And, and he soon realizes that although he thought he had found what he really wanted, power and wealth, he, found, he finds that now he's trapped. He's stuck. Because as a dragon, they won't let him back on the boat. No one recognizes him. They won't let him back on the boat with the others. So he's stuck on this barren island by himself as a dragon forever. Eustace had gotten what he thought he wanted, wealth and power. But when he got what he wanted, he found that he was not happy at all. He was, he was not content. In fact, it had left him alone and unhappy. And one day, Aslan the lion comes. And you guys know that he's a picture of Jesus. Aslan the lion comes by and he tells Eustace, he tells him, take off your dragon skin. And so Eustace is unsure what to do at first. Just take it off? So he starts ripping off his dragon skin only to find that underneath that dragon skin was just another layer of dragon skin. And no matter how many times he tried to rip it off, he tried like three times to rip off each layer of this dragon skin, there was another layer and another layer, and he couldn't take it off. But Aslan says to him, and here's the key, Aslan says, you're going to need to let me go deeper. You're going to need to let me go deeper. So Aslan takes his claws, right? And this is what Eustace says. Here's a quote from the book. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was desperate now. And the, first, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw I had turned into a boy again. You know, almost always when we go to Jesus and we say, this is my deepest wish, his response is, you need to go deeper than that. You see, with this lame man in Mark chapter 2, at the moment, 
Jesus had the power. He did have the power at that moment to heal that man. And he does have the power and authority to give each of us everything that we want, everything that we think we need right now. But God loves us too much to grant all of our wishes. He loves us enough to go deeper than that, to the very root issue, which cannot be solved by just giving us everything that we want and we think we need. The root issue is an issue of the heart, and we need to find our fullness in Christ. We need to be forgiven. We need to be reconciled to God. That is what our heart truly longs for. You know, it's been said that Michelangelo, when he was sculpting, that he would say that when he looked at a rough piece of rock, just a raw material, he would say that he could see the art that was hidden within it, and his job as a sculptor was just to remove the unnecessary parts and reveal the work of art which was hidden in, in, underneath it. So he would knock away the unnecessary parts, the raw piece of stone that he was working with, in order to reveal and release the art that was hidden within. And I believe that's what God does with us. We're like raw material. And God's word says that by his spirit, God's ultimate goal is to form us into the image of Christ. So sometimes, like Michelangelo, in order to reveal that image of Christ within us, God has to get rid of the unnecessary stuff, the parts that don't belong, the rough edges, the chunks of flesh. And just like Aslan had to remove the dragon skin from Eustace, it was painful. But in the end, the real issue is that God knows exactly what we need. And he is kind enough not just to give us what we want all the time, or even what we think we need, but to give us what we truly need, to get to the issue of the heart. And contentment is when you're able to trust in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the love of God, that in all circumstances, he is in control. And he is working out his good plan, which is going to be for your good and for his glory. And you're able to trust and be content in the knowledge that he knows what you really need, even if it may not be what you thought that you needed. And that is the path to true joy, finding contentment in the plan of God who is sovereign, all-knowing, all-loving, and always has your best interest in mind. And I'm going to finish up with our third point, which is a short one, and that is the generosity that leads to joy. The generosity that leads to joy. We'll read verses 16 through 19. He says, Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Jesus says this, he says, uh, Love your enemies, do good. This is from Luke chapter 6. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Your generosity is who God is. That is what he is like. Notice Paul says in Philippians 4.17, he says that when people are generous, there is fruit that increases to your credit, to your benefit. You know what generosity does in your life? Generosity keeps you from being a small, self-centered, 
unhappy person. Have you ever met somebody like that? Somebody who's super stingy and they just become a small, unhappy, self-centered person. That's what stinginess leads to. Generosity, which again is an intricate part of the character of God that, that he wants us to take upon ourselves and reflect to this world. Generosity gives us the opportunity to be big people, to be great, to be magnanimous people. And generosity leads to joy. You know the irony of self-service? And probably you've realized this if you've met people who are really self-focused. The irony of self-service and self-centeredness is this. People desperately want to be happy. They want to feel that joy that we've been talking about. But they go about it the wrong way. What they do is that they're so concerned with their own happiness, they're so focused on making themselves happy and getting the things that they want that they end up alone and unhappy. It's a trap. I've seen it before. You, you think that these people think that they're working towards their own happiness. But in all actuality, they're just going toward a path, down a path towards smallness and isolation. And uh, I don't know if you remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. It's a very interesting story. And it's not just interesting because a short guy climbed a tree and then Jesus invited himself over to his house. Although that's a practice that I say, hey, that's a Jesus thing. And uh, I will feel free to invite myself over to your house. So the, the heart of the story is this. The heart of the story is there is a man who is enslaved. He is in bondage to his own possessions. He's like Eustace in the story of the Don Treader. He thought that he wanted to be rich and powerful. He thought that's what he really wanted and really needed. But once he got rich and powerful, he found himself alone and unhappy. See, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, right? And that means that he got rich by taking advantage of other people. So he got wealthy... But his wealth was a trap because it left him small and unhappy and lonely. So Jesus comes by, and Zacchaeus is short. He climbs the tree, and he, Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. And this is what we read. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, check this out, he said, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus had been a slave to his wealth and he was set free. He not only repented, but he became generous. And because of that, Jesus was able to say, salvation has come to this house today. It was a great sign of repentance. It showed that Zacchaeus had truly been saved and repented. He became generous like God is generous. And I'll tell you what, Zacchaeus became a much more joyful person. Because he had lived it, he truly knew that self-centeredness is a trap. And that generosity is the, is the path that leads to joy. And I'll tell you what, Zacchaeus became a more joyful person. Self-centeredness and stinginess, it makes you a small, unhappy, lonely person. But generosity, like God, who gave everything, everything he possibly could, he did not even withhold his son from us. Generosity gives you the opportunity to be set free from bondage to the material things of this world. And that is an intricate part of the path to true joy. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom, for your insight, for your knowledge, Lord. And we thank you that knowing our lives, Lord, that you have such deep concern for us. 
that you go beyond the surface. You go beyond those uh, superficial things that we think that we need in order to be happy, Lord, and that you go beyond them to the real issue of the heart. Lord, and help us, we pray, to be content in you. Help us to learn contentment. Help us to learn that trust in your character. And Lord, I pray that you'd fill our hearts with joy. And as we get to know the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope of life now and the hope of eternal life because you've made us righteous, Lord, as we, as we get to know that hope more and more, Lord, we just pray that it would bear the fruit of joy in our lives, that we would just abound in joy and that as we are joyful people, Lord, who have that deep-seated, unshakable joy in our hearts, Lord, that, that other people would see that in our lives. They would see your fingerprints all over our lives for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.